Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today I have an interview with Catherine Blunt. Catherine is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the author of California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. The book, a national bestseller, won the 2022 Golden Poppy Award for nonfiction. Her coverage of PG&E, a collaboration with two colleagues, was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and earned a Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business journalism. The focus of our conversation is the book, California Burning, where we get into depth in both the history and its relevance for the present. Please enjoy our conversation. In July, uh, my partner and I flew to Maui for vacation, and I started reading your book right around that time, and I actually remember walking around with it below the tree right in the center of Lahaina and thinking about fires, and it seems like there is just a lot to be unpacked in terms of the relationship between what we experienced in California with the campfire, what's going on in Maui and Lahaina. So it needs to be said clearly off the top that we don't know conclusively what caused the fire in Maui. There's been a, a lot of lawsuits against Hawaiian Electric, including one filed by the, the county of, of Maui, alleging that the utilities power lines ignited the fire. The utilities disputed this this week and says it does not believe that uh, its power lines ignited the fire that ultimately destroyed the town. So, you know, official investigations are ongoing. We will see how that plays out. However, that being said, it's clear that wildfire risk is an issue in Hawaii. <laughs> the the incidents of the last several weeks have made that abundantly clear. And so as part of the reporting on this, one thing I went to look at it with the help of some colleagues is, you know, what did Hawaiian Electric know about wildfire risk? What was it trying to what was it trying to do? And based on the regulatory filings filed with the state utilities commission, what you can see is a utility that was observing California's experience in 2019 and recognizing that it needed to do more to address the risk of its power lines igniting wildfires. And it proposed kind of a series of measures that it wanted to take. Ultimately, you know, this is common utility practice, brought in a consultant to make some recommendations and then took those recommendations and formulated a plan. It took a long time, relatively speaking, especially if you kind of look at it in hindsight. The company didn't file that plan until 2022, and it's still pending before the regulatory commission, which, again, I mean, this is a fairly common pace at which to move in the utility industry, but it does appear that you know wildfire risk and a climate-driven risk is moving faster than the industry often moves in this case. And that was, we'll d- dive into this more deeply, but that was true in California. That was certainly PG&E's experience. And you know another parallel that we can, again, dig more deeply into is that the Hawaiian Electric, you know, in talking to folks familiar with the way the company was operating over the last few years and what it was most closely focused on, was very focused on helping Hawaii meet its renewable energy targets by contracting for new wind and solar power. I mean, that's a good thing, right? I mean, there's there's there was a requirement in place, targets to hit. It's understood that's a you know a long-term climate change mitigation measure that utilities should be engaged in. But you know, the company wasn't as focused on operational risk, right? And it's not an outlier in that way. That was the case for PG&E for a long time. And I think for all utilities, it begs the question: if you are you know closely focused on power generation and the energy transition, do you have commensurate resources on the operational side as well, examining risk? 
I want to start by talking about genre. This summer, I read Killers of the Flower Moon kind of in preparation for the movie coming out in the fall. And I noticed some similarities in terms of kind of true crime meets history. How would you classify uh, genre-wise where your book fits? That's not, a, that's not a bad way of putting it. True crime meets history. And it's it's not a, you know, in some ways, it's a very dramatic crime. <laughs> you have a utility company pleading guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter for its role in, until recently, was the deadliest wildfire in modern U.S. history. But it's also, in some ways, you know, explaining the the why behind that is, it's almost banal in a way. You know, it's just like teeny tiny decisions made over the course of many years by a disparate number of individuals, right? And I mean, obviously, the chief component of any crime is proving intent. And prosecutors were able to do that. But it's, 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 the corporate liability in this, in this case is actually a very challenging concept. And so, Yes, I mean, it is a true crime, and but the history really comes into play because of, you know, first of all, just the long history of this company, really the, the last 20 years in particular, and how a lot of dynamics came into play to create the current circumstances. Okay. Um, can we talk about kind of the background of the book in terms of its relationship to the reporting you did? And you also had some collaboration with some colleagues. So can you talk about kind of the preparation and the reporting behind the book? What was that process? Absolutely. And so when I, I was hired to cover utilities specifically for the Wall Street Journal on November 5th, 2018, that was my first day, didn't know a whole lot about the industry, candidly. I mean, it was just not my background. And of course, you know, it's common when journalists get up to speed, it's, we learn, it's what we do. But within, you know, th three days later, the campfire ignited in Northern California. It became very clear that it was a PG&E transmission line that caused it. You know, it destroyed the town of paradise again killed 84 people so off the bat it was i mean pg &E became one of the biggest stories of the year and i was really really fortunate to work with two very talented colleagues each of whom had experience covering utilities and power rebecca smith um, who did it for years for the journal and russell gold kind of consummate energy reporter and by working with them, I was able to learn much more quickly than I probably would have alone in covering the story. And so we collaborated on a series of pieces that not only tried to look at the specific circumstances that led to the ignition of the campfire, but sort of a, a broader set of circumstances and, and dynamics that created just a series of real existential challenges for PG&E. And there's such a large variety of source material that you're working with in this book. What what were you able to gather from former employees and how was their perspective kind of colored by being in the organization? Now? Sure. You know, I would say that in talking to former employees, I didn't really find, I found a few, I mean, who were disgruntled or frustrated, but for the most part, what I found were people who genuinely wanted to know what went wrong because in their experience, their personal experience, and the decisions that they were making and the interactions that they were having with other people, they, they, they couldn't really understand how everything had gone downhill to such an incredible extent, right? I mean, they kind of felt like they were making the best decisions they knew how with the information that they had and that their observations of their colleagues was that they were doing the same. I mean, one issue that has been constant within the organization over time is like, it's expense pressure, right? Because utilities make money with large capital investments. They don't make money on expenses that can include day-to-day -day operations and maintenance activities. And so at various points in time, especially when the company was in really, you know, encountering some sort of challenge, 
certain employees would be frustrated that expenses they thought could be beneficial for safety or reliability or what have you were were kind of under pressure. But I don't I didn't encounter anyone who was knowingly making a decision that they thought would be so compromise that end goal. Right. And so to the extent people wanted to talk, I think it was really almost they they too wanted to ask questions. Right. I wanted to ask questions of them and they wanted to ask questions of me in terms of like what where, where did we collectively go wrong? Right. And that's a really hard question to answer. Kind of the blind men touching the different parts of the elephant and not knowing kind of how the whole works and the people at the top probably least likely to talk about it because they were so involved in that decision making. That makes that, That's true. None of the former CEOs wanted to have a conversation. I mean, they were very much involved in litigation during the time of this reporting, and it's understandable as to why they wouldn't want to do that. Absolutely. Um, Can you br- briefly... Uh, explain your analogy of how the grid works, uh, the transportation analogy, um, because we, we jump in and we talk about some transmission lines and kind of what went wrong. I want uh, to people to have kind of a schema in their mind for yeah, how that works. Absolutely. It's, it's actually really, it's easy to understand. So, I mean, if you think about the, the grid as a, as a network of, of roads, so to speak, transmission lines are high voltage wires, sort of akin to highways. They pick up electricity at power plants, you know, whatever that may be, coal, gas, wind, solar and carry it over long distances. And then that power, the voltage is stepped down and uh, delivered across a network of lower voltage distribution wires that serve homes and businesses. So transmission is high voltage, distribution is lower voltage. You see distribution lines in your your neighborhood, you see transmission lines running along the highway. I love that analogy because it was so simple to explain to people. I'm reading another book called The Grid, and then also I'm about halfway through a book called Shorting the Grid, which yeah. kind of was interesting in terms of thinking about what Enron did, and we can talk about that in a second. Last thing before we jump into kind of the meat of the book, I just want to spend a moment to briefly talk about another utility that I've paid electric bills to, Southern California Edison. So they're mentioned kind of in passing throughout the book. Did Southern California Edison also experience legal issues in the same capacity, maybe not at the scale? Certainly not at the scale. I mean, they they have experienced legal issues related to fires. Yes. That being said, wildfires has historically been more of a risk in Southern California. I don't think that that is true anymore. But historically, that was... Uh, a dynamic that was sort of well understood and kind of conventional wisdom. Southern California is hotter and drier. The whisk, risk of fire, especially when uh, the Santa Ana winds blow, is high. And it was 2007, a San Diego gas and electric power line ignited a, a massive wildfire that was really devastating. And it prompted the California Public Utilities Commission to try to figure out whether it should do more to push the big investor-owned utilities, that would be SDG&E, Southern California Edison, and, and PG&E, to do, what, what should they do, right? And PG&E basically successfully argued that wildfire risk wasn't as high in Northern California, so it shouldn't have to take the same steps as the utilities in Southern California, like filing a formal wildfire mitigation plan with like specific risk mitigation measures they wanted to take. So the commission ultimately agreed and required the Southern utilities to do more to address fire risk and to pay closer attention and get started on it earlier. Whereas, you know, PG&E only got started after wildfire risk had completely overwhelmed the company. So part of the reason why you haven't seen the same extent of problems in the South is because the utilities have been working on it for longer. I see. Let's jump into kind of the early chapters of your book and talk about monopolizing tendencies. 
given the capital costs of building grids, is it inevitable that utilities kind of have these monopolizing outcomes? That became the conclusion kind of in the 10s, 20s, and 30s as electric companies were working to build out the grid. There was there was competition early on. But yeah, I mean, it is a capital-intensive business and it doesn't make perfect sense to have two competing companies build a power, you know, two power plants right next to each other or the same transmission line or whatever because it just diminishes the returns on like these like multi, you know, million dollar investments or multi-billion and as it would be today. So, yeah, so you had the, you know, the establishment of regulatory bodies to make sure that these companies were providing safe and reliable service in exchange for these monopolies over certain you know, service territory. And in terms of the merger between, I'm sorry, Western, Great Western and, or Western, excuse me, Great Western? It's, or Western? Great, it's Great Western, yeah. It's Great, Great Western, Western. and mm -hmm. PG&E. Can you describe the circumstances of that merger and then what role did the 1906 earthquake play in that? Yeah, I love, I kind of love this story. So it really at the turn of the 20th century, PG&E was just getting its footing and you know around the same time there's a, there's a group of men who who recognize you know the the great bounty of hydropower in the Sierra foothills and they they set out to build a, a large transmission network ultimately to deliver that power to harness it and deliver it to San Francisco and this company which would be called Great Western was really the only competitor that PG&E ever had PG&E had gotten a head start but then the 1906 earthquake uh, wiped out a lot of its the infrastructure that it had built so it was kind of like rebuilding as Great Western was doing their projects. So they ultimately competed head to head for a while to serve San Francisco and, and also the surrounding Bay Area as well. And it, it wasn't really until 1930 that, I mean, the company, both companies had passed into new leadership or were under new leadership. And like that leadership really recognized, like, it's not worth competing anymore. Let's just, let's just create a huge power company serving most of Northern and, and a lot of Southern California, or excuse me, Central California. And that was Super consequential. It kind of created the, the PG&E that we know today. But you know, I mean, the, when we talk about the the campfire that destroyed the town of Paradise in 2018, it ignited when a the as a result of a failure of a transmission line that Great Western had built. It was it specifically happened because a, a very small hook about the width of a fist broke in half and dropped a live wire that swung against the metal tower. Sparks settled in the dry brush below. That hook was original infrastructure. It was installed almost exactly 100 years earlier by Great Western. And you know, over the course of time, PG&E really didn't have great records on this infrastructure. Not only the stuff that it built back in the day, but certainly not the stuff that Great Western built, right? Well, let's just, just jump like, into that because that was my big question from the book is, is, is it common practice to not keep records like this? Is this something we see across the utilities industry or is this something uh, specific to PG&E? Well, you think about the, I mean, no, I mean, you, you do see record keeping challenges across the entire industry. And I mean, okay. part of it is just like there's a there's a practical challenge associated with keeping records created in like 1916. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just that that's not the easiest thing in the world. And, you know, maybe you don't need the original schematics per se. If you're keeping good records of current inspections and, you know, have done analyses on the, you know, the whatever material it is that you're looking at and, you know, checking often checking for signs of wear. But you know, PG&E neither had nor like neither had original records nor current records. <laughs> Ultimately, it was determined when they were kind of analyzing why this particular transmission tower failed. The the contemporary inspection and, and maintenance practices that had in place simply weren't enough to assess the fact that this extraordinarily old stuff was about to give out. Hmm. 
Another kind of strange thing beyond records was the fact that originally there was a railroad commission that was governing utilities, and then it transformed, like you said, into the California Public Utilities Commission. One of the things that I was struck with is the variety and diversity of industries that this commission has to manage. And can you talk how about how the Railroad Commission was converted into this Public Utilities Commission? And do you think that that commission is equipped to deal with this broad range of industries? Yeah. I mean, the, the Railroad Commission started governing the original monopolies, right? I'm sorry, they were called the, the Railroad Commission. You still see that in Texas, actually. I mean, that the, in Texas, it's still called the Railroad Commission, even though they oversee delivery, delivery of electric power. No, no, that's not true. They do see oversee gas. I'm, I'm sorry, I misspoke. But so, yeah, you know, within a few decades of the PG&E and Great Western merger, the Railroad Commission becomes the California Public Utilities Commission to kind of recognize the fact that utilities and their overall regulation were growing increasingly important amid, you know, concerns about electric power generation, power prices. And and so then, but it remains true today that, as you say, it, but the, they do oversee a, a really wide range of industries. And it's one of the biggest commissions in the country. So in terms of resources. I mean, it's, of course, California is a huge state, so that makes sense. But, you know, the, the commission itself has had to reckon with the way it allocates resources over the last several years. I mean, one consistent theme in the book is that within the commission over the last couple of decades, just a lot of time and attention was dedicated to helping the state achieve renewable energy targets. Uh, if you w- worked within the commission, you really wanted to be working on that policy side. That was kind of the sexiest place to be, so to speak. And like by comparison, the safety division was understaffed and underfunded. And, you know, again, that's not like a, that's not any sort of indictment of renewables. It's just it's just something to consider in terms of like, are there adequate resources across the board to do the things that the commission is tasked with doing, which includes policy, but also includes safety? Yeah. Let's talk for a second about deregulation. Um, I think when people think about the word deregulation, they think of maybe like the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, for example, you know, kind of removing some barriers to engage in certain practices. But I think deregulation in your context means something different. So can you explain what that process was in California? Deregulation, in, in my view, is it's an unfortunate misnomer because like the provision of electricity is always going to be regulated in some way. But in California and in some other states at the you know, the late 1990s, there was interest in creating competition among power generators, so basically power plant owners. You know, historically at the time, that function was entirely left to, well, not entirely, but largely left to utility companies that would own the power plants, own the power lines, and then, you know, sell the wholesale power they generated to retail customers, vertically integrated model. So in the late 90s, there was this interest in, in breaking off that generation component allowing competitive companies to own power plants and compete to sell it at the lowest price. The utilities would continue to own the infrastructure needed to move power around, so that part would remain regulated, but the the actual generation of electricity itself would be competitive. And so in California, with this experiment, the utilities sold off most of their power plants to these new competitive companies. And there was a, a wholesale power market that was established to try to drive down the cost of producing power. That was the that was the goal because it was coming off a time in which electricity prices had gotten really high. And it was the construct of the market was interesting. And without getting too deep into it, let's just say that the construct was easily manipulated. So then you had a lot of different competitive companies. They, you know, they could withhold power from daily auctions or they could like route power in weird ways to create congestion on the system. 
they could do some sort of like in-state, out-of-state trickery. There was like, there was a lot of means of artificially driving up prices. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, the, the most notorious manipulator in this period was Enron, which had formed a trading desk that was very heavily involved in, in California. Other generators manipulated the market as well. And ultimately what happened was all of the state's utilities ended up racking up a large amount of debt and because power prices had gotten so inflated and they needed to buy that wholesale power to deliver to customers. And PG&E, though, among the three, was the only to file for bankruptcy. And that bankruptcy was very consequential because, I mean, there's a couple of reasons, but in my view, the chief consequence coming out in you know, the years following 2004, 2005, is that the company was very intent on reestablishing itself on Wall Street and regaining the goodwill of shareholders. And it became very intent on maximizing returns in ways that ultimately compromise safety. Yeah. And if people are interested in learning more about commodity traders like Enron, the, the book, The World for Sale, is a great kind of encapsulation of how this market works and how it's manipulated in order to make profits. I, I do want to, per what you just said, talk about how PG&E was pulled in so many different directions to shareholders, to climate initiatives, to building nuclear power plants. Do you see kind of this like pull in many different directions as part of the reason why maintenance was ignored? I did not. I would, yeah, I, th- I think so. Well, certainly in terms of delivering to, to Wall Street, coming out of that first bankruptcy, the company launches this big business transformation plan that's meant to basically create efficiencies. I think that that was the point at the end of the day. It was very much like of that era, right? They bring yeah, in a private equity kind of yeah. like making it more profitable. Right, right. And appealing to a wider set of shareholders instead of sort of the common widows and orphans sort of shareholder you might have seen historically. Yeah, so they bring in this, a ton of consultants who make all these recommendations. And I mean, most basically, the consultants were like, hey, like, your expenses are really high. And if you cut your expenses, you'll have more money to free up to invest this capital. And that's a higher return for you. Yeah. And so these decisions kind of come down from on high, right? I mean, this whole idea of cutting expenses, it kind of leaves it to the middle managers to figure out what to cut what not to cut and they have to make really tough choices on some stuff that's directly related to safety right like and that it became most poignant in 2010 after a gas transmission pipeline exploded south of san francisco in san bruno and it was discovered that the company had been you know doing improper maintenance and infections on the gas transmission system for years in part because of the expense pressures that the employees were under used in your book and particularly around this section around either it was tax incentives or reasons for them to invest in capital infrastructure or new projects versus maintenance. It seems like there's financial rewards for building new things as opposed to spending money on maintenance. That's right. And it's actually pretty easy to understand. So in most, most places in the U.S., the way a utility company makes money is to invest in something that adds to the overall value of the system which is not to be wonky, but it's the quote unquote rate base. So it's if you build a new power plant in places where you can do that, or you build a new power line, you get a regulated rate of return on that investment. And that's determined by the regulatory commission. It's usually, I don't know, 10 to 12%, maybe a little lower, maybe a little higher, depending on the situation. And so that's an automatic you know, 10% on whatever that investment is, or 11% or what, what have you. If you think about inspections and maintenance, it's harder to understand how that adds to the overall value of the system, right? I mean, it does, and it does. I mean, just but kind of like almost more like ethereally. <laughs> it's yeah, just like stability. hard to kind of stability yeah, is a value. Sure, but it's just like ex- figuring out exactly what that value add is is difficult. Mm-hmm. So, so the utility can pass through those costs to consumers and recoup that spending, but it can't make profit on that spending. 
right? It's just a pass-through cost. And so it's not as though it comes out of the utility's bottom line necessarily because they can recoup the cost, but strong financial performers in the space have been successful at minimizing their expenses so that they have more money to invest as capital. That's and that's kind of the push-pull that utilities have to balance. And PG&E for a long time did not strike this balance well. The other thing to your point about climate initiatives was that around the time PG&E emerges from its first bankruptcy, California begins to set some very ambitious renewable energy targets. And as a result of deregulation, PG&E is not going out to build these wind and solar farms, right? They don't really operate in that world anymore. They're going out to contract for that power with developers. So they're signing these, I mean, wind and solar are some of the cheapest forms of generation that we have today. This was not the case 20 years ago. This, the, it was much more expensive to contract for wind and solar than it would be presently. And so they were signing these multi-billion dollar contracts with developers. These two are expenses. And that was something that added to overall expense pressure throughout the organization, in part because, you know, you can only raise rates so much, right? And you can like, and and power was getting more expensive. And that was like a, a consideration that the company had to balance as well. And that, again, I mean, that's not a, and that's not an outright criticism of these early contracts. The the act, the role that the California utilities played in, in procuring this energy early on is significant in helping to drive down the costs and create the economies of scale that we have today. Like there's there's always going to be early movers, right? It's yeah. just there's a little bit of unfortunate irony at play. Can you explain the concept of inverse condemnation? Yeah, inverse condemnation is somewhat unique to California in terms of a liability construct. So basically, it used to I mean, so if you think about eminent domain, it the idea is that a government agency has to compensate a property owner for the taking of their property in the interest of the public good right? Fair and just compensation if you're going to forcibly take someone's property. The quote unquote inverse of that would be if you, if something that was built in the interest of the public good destroys someone's personal property, they're, they're entitled to compensation. And at first, this, I mean, this applied to government agencies, a series of legal decisions made it so that it also applies to privately owned utilities in California. So the utility company becomes strictly liable for the damages resulting from fires that their power lines start, regardless of how they maintain the system. There's not a, you don't have to prove negligence. You just have to simply prove that the infrastructure started it. We're going to jump to kind of broad lessons and regional questions. What's your perspective on what's going on with insurance companies in California? State Farm recently announced that they're not going to be issuing new policies. Uh, how do you see the relationship between what's going on with the utility companies and what's going on with the insurance companies in California? Well, I mean, it's, really challenging to see for, for people. I mean, it's, this is a really challenging dynamic for homeowners to navigate, no question about it. And I think that, you know, it needs need to say that utility companies don't cause like the majority of wildfires. It's, I mean, they can be caused by so many different things, but the fact that there's been so much fire activity, a lot of the, some of the deadliest and most destructive have been linked to utilities. I mean, it, it really underscores the, the importance um, of utilities having proper wildfire mitigation plans in place to kind of hopefully, maybe eventually kind of restore some insurer confidence in this market to, to an extent, even though it's not all incumbent upon the power companies. Okay. And how, how has researching and writing this book changed your perspective on climate initiatives in regards to utilities? Has it modified your perspective on it or is your perspective the same? I think, I mean, I think there were some early missteps. I mean, some of the earliest contracts are probably way more expensive than they needed to be. I think in aggregate, 
that early push was really, you know, good and, and significant in a lot of ways, but it also had some unintended consequences in which, you know, first specifically within PG&E, it was, you know, potentially it was both a distraction and a, and a you know, a, created some real expense pressures that that manifested in, in very serious ways. And I want to be like extremely clear, it's not any sort of indictment of renewables. It just it just begs the question, if you're going to have a utility company engaged in the, the pursuit of procuring any sort of generation that's related to the energy transition, you know, wind, solar storage. There's so many companies out there pursuing this, partly at the, you know, direction of the state, partially of the of their own initiative, recognizing that it's going to be important in mitigating climate change long term, right? That's the that's the whole point. The question is, you know, climate climate risk is playing out in other ways. Are you paying close enough attention to what's happening in really in your own backyard as you're doing this? That naturally leads to my last question before we talk about books, which is, um, what do you hope that California readers will take from your book about how their power is made and delivered to them? And should all of us PG&E customers just, you know, as a result of these multiple bankruptcies, just be resigned to ever increasing utility costs? Well, I, I think I think we're moving into a period in which electricity is going to cost more, period, not just in California, but across the country. There's a lot of investments that need to be made in the system. What I hope is that you know, that it does justice to, in terms of, you know, this specific story about PG&E, that it does justice to the fact that this is a company that, you know, unfortunately was mismanaged for a long time. And there was a lot of really adverse consequences that stem from that. But there's also a lot of other very significant, very challenging circumstances at play that are equally important in understanding why the company is in this position. And then what I really hope readers take away is that this is not just a California story. You're beginning to see utilities across the country grapple with a lot of these same pressures and challenges. And while you know infrastructure failure for a company in North Carolina might not result in catastrophic wildfire, it could result in really long power outages, right? That's really challenging. Or you know any other number of uh, different things that compromise the reliability of the system and potentially you know create uh, life-threatening circumstances for people. And so I think the smartest utilities are trying to get a handle on what this means for them. But obviously, we're going to see a lot of variability within the industry in terms of speed <laughs> okay. as they move. And to close, what are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners that are either interested in this topic or adjacent topics? My colleague, Russell Gold, wrote a book called Superpower. It's about the quest to build high voltage transmission, very challenging, but very relevant in the world in which we live currently. So this is an oldie but goodie in my opinion. I also mentioned my colleague, Rebecca Smith. And she and a colleague back in the day wrote a story about their experience at the Wall Street Journal covering the fall of Enron. We mentioned, you know, Enron, and it's like it's just as much about Enron as like the journalistic process at the Wall Street Journal and the significance of having front page stories about a company like this. It was like about the 24 days from when they like started writing stories to when the company sought bankruptcy protection. I think that book is really good. You already mentioned Shorting the Grid. That's a good one. You already mentioned The World for Sale. That's also a good one. Well, there's four. There's four to, to get yeah. started. Yeah, those are great. What are you working on next? Well, keeping an eye on Hawaii. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Really okay. tragic circumstances. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.